Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Desert Island Games. I'm not John Latimer, who's unfortunately been captured. Oh, I've been left manding, looking after the Desert Island, and he's away messing around with the Executioner or something. I don't know. Yeah, I received a dodgy postcard the other day, and it's it's not looking good for him, I'm afraid. But I'm sure we'll get either him or somebody else back for the next edition. In the meantime, you're going to have to put up with me, Harold Rutherford Yak, resident of the Desert Island, and this person over here. It is Mr. I Igirisu Shinshi. Is that right, sir? Almost. It's Igirisu Shinshi no Gamer, which for... The 99.9% of the population who don't know what that means, it says English Gentleman Gamer in Japanese. Ah, okay. So welcome to the island. How do you like it here? It's very sunny. I like the palm trees wafting in the background. Yes, it's a lot sunnier than Wigan. It explains why I have a tan, even though I live in Wigan. Well, you've, despite all them pies, you've got a tan, have you? It's a pie gravy tan, yes. A meat pie gravy instant tan. Reminiscent of the um, Games Master Desert Island, who just seems to be missing the two blonde-haired girls knocking about. Oh, yes. I'm going to have to have a word with John when he gets back about that, because we need some females on this island. That's been a serial problem thus far. I think we only have one, and she was eaten by sharks or something. Hmm, yes. So, yes, we're going to have to get some of the Dominic Diamond-esque birds down here. I mean, ladies, oh dear, this is getting very sexist, isn't it? Never mind. This is supposed to be about video games, this show. And in case you're not familiar with the format, our guests come along to the desert island, sit here in their deck chair, and relate their eight favorite games, or rather, the eight games they'd like to bring with them to the desert island. They can also pick... One luxury item and one book, but they must stay here for eternity. So this is obviously a very important decision. So I hear you've been doing a little bit of research on this, Mr. Igirishu. Yeah, recently one of my colleagues at work gave me a, a Raspberry Pi, a slightly older one. I think it's a Raspberry Pi B or A plus or something. Anyway, for Raspberry Pi, there's a lot of different distros they call them in the Linux community and one of them knows I found out it's called RetroPie. Basically it cobbles together a load of emulators. I mean the list of games that it supports is as long as my arm mm -hmm. and then you you copy the disk image onto a memory card you sit the memory card in, run through a couple of simple procedures on the card and then you copy over your legal backups of any games that you've got around and you can play them the ones I found easiest to do was Atari Lynx, Game Gear, Mega Drive, NES, Super Nintendo, PC Engine, Game Boy, Game Boy Color, not the Game Boy Advance, for some reason that's one's not playing ball. There's an MS-DOS one in there. There's a load of arcade emulators. It supports MAME, which I've never even heard of, to my shame. But I've not got them working yet. But yeah, it does support an awful lot of games. So... I've played most of the Super Nintendo games I've ever wanted to play, likewise for the Game Boy, but the Nintendo Entertainment System, I have got one, but I've never really got around to playing it that much. So it now gives me the ability to just copy over whatever game I want and play it very easily on a normal TV with a cheap USB gamepad from eBay or Amazon. So the games I've been getting stuck into, a couple of Ninja Gaiden games, I've really enjoyed them. I've wanted to really wanted to play the first Zelda game. Although my son's nicked the joypad recently and we've been playing through A Link to the Past. Oh. Which I don't really mind because that 
It's not my favourite Zelda game. That honour goes to the Game Boy one. Link's Awakening. Yes, that one. <laughs> that would be the one. I'd, well, more specifically, the Game Boy Colour one. I do prefer that one. And it's one of the few Zelda games I've played all the way through. Well, yeah, on the Retro Pie, it's just because you can have any game you want for it. As long as the system is emulated, you can play any game. So I do have quite a short attention span, though, now. Because once I start getting stuck on one game, like, say, Turtles in Time on the Super Nintendo, it's like, right, off. I'll go and play Zombies Ate My Neighbours or Super Smash TV or something instead that I know is a bit easier for me. <laughs> but yeah, Retro Pie, I don't, I've been going back using that just because basically you plug an HDMI cable in and it works on a modern telly. You don't have to find a half-decent laptop or decent PC and then get an emulator and faff around. It's just basically plug and play for retro systems. and it's. I mean, I think it's fantastic, and considering it's free as well, the lads who do it don't get any money for doing it. I think it's brilliant. Hmm. It sounds like a fantastic device, actually, because it seems to me this is what the Ouya should have been. Screw all those independently developed games that nobody plays. We want to play the classic games. In fact, I bet most people with the Ouya, they only get it so they can hack it, put the old emulators on and play the old games. Then you've got a little box that plugs into your TV, and you don't need all the wires and all the bits and pieces required. I mean, I've got a wardrobe over here full of about five or six consoles, and if I want to play one of them, it takes me at least ten minutes to get one set up because I have to go faffing around behind my television. It certainly makes it so easy to... You've got every system there in one... I mean, the Raspberry Pi itself is literally the size of a pack of cards. So you put a case on it, which makes it essentially the size of two packs of cards... You stick a gamepad in the front, you stick an HDMI cable in the side, a power cable in the back, and away you go. Like you say, you don't have to spend 10 minutes retuning your telly in to the right frequency for the Nintendo. That's assuming it can take an RF signal in the first place. Or dig out the, what is it, the component lead or composite lead and stick it in the side of your telly. Like you say, you have to either change the games one by one, which you know, we used to do, but we get lazy these days and we like to just do it all by remote control. Or change the console over completely this one. It's one joypad, and you can play anything you want. I mean, I've got the entire Mega Drive, Game Gear, Master System, Game Boy, NES, PC Engine, and Super Nintendo libraries on there at the moment. It's about 2,000 games. And, of course, you own all of those games Yes, I have. From my own pocket, I've bought every single one of those games. I have not... Or old or acquired <laughs> off the internet from MU Paradise whatsoever. <laughs> no, he lives in a gigantic house filled to the brim with these games. Yeah, I can send you a picture of my collection anytime. My NES collection is Isolated Warrior, Super Mario Brothers, and Gradius, I think. Yeah, three games on that one. My Super Nintendo collection consists of Batman Returns or something, a Batman game. I mistakenly sold all the games to buy a PVR for my PS3. I regret that now. Anyway, that's another mm. story. That's a good point, actually. Can you hook up the RetroPie to, say, a capture card and then yes. stick it into your computer and stream those games? I presume so, because it's HDMI out, so you can get an HDMI cable that goes in the RetroPie, well, Raspberry Pi, rather, and whatever you want on the other end. You could split it into, is it a component one, where it's five, red, green, and blue, and then red and white for the audio, yeah? I'm a PC at work, I could stick it in the HDMI input thing and record it or stream it, yeah, it wouldn't be a problem. Ah, sounds fantastic. So is the Retro Pi basically just a Raspberry Pi, but modified? No, the Raspberry Pi itself stays the same. It's just a little circuit with an HDMI out, a 
power input, and then depending on the age of it, the processors get a bit better if you buy a newer one and spend a bit more money. The one I've got's only got two USB ports on it. The newer one has got four. RetroPie just sits on the SD card that you plug in it, and that's it. The RetroPie is really just like Windows, effectively, but a very bespoke one. All it does is play games. Most people, if they've ever tinkered with Linux, will know it can be a bit rough around the edges, shall we say. GUIs and stuff like that are a bit ropey occasionally. But this one's very slick. You plug it in. Because mine's a bit older, it takes about a minute to boot up properly. And then you come up to this thing called Emulation Station. I mean, I'm not dead sure exactly how it's all done. But you see this anyway. This big splash screen comes up saying Emulation Station. And once that boots up, you just flick left and right on your joypad and it takes you through the name of the system you want to play. You press A, it brings up a list of games. You choose the game you want, you press A, and then it fires up. It's 10 seconds of a job. And then you just press start and select to quit the game and go and play something else. So if you're, like I say, an RPG fan, I mean, like on my kind of, not bucket list is maybe a strong word, but games I do intend playing at some point, I'd like to do redo Secret of Mana, the Secret of Evermore, then there's Chrono Trigger. So you could just have those on there. And then even in then, it's like, 30, 40 hours worth of amusement mm. in there. Let alone, it's obviously all the sports games if you're into NHL or NFL and the Street Fighter games if you're a fighting fan. I can't fault it personally for free. The only outlay you would have would be the Raspberry Pi, which is up to 25 quid, depending on which one you buy, and a case for about four quid. The rest of it, you're more than likely these days to have an HDMI cable. It requires a micro USB power supply, which you probably would have got with your mobile phone unless you bought an iPhone. And if you're a gaming fan, you're more than likely going to have a joypad kicking around that's got a USB connector. Personally, I just think it makes it so easy. And my son is seven and he can do it. He knows how to plug it in and fire up Link to the Past now. He'll just go and do it on his own now. That's how easy it is. A seven-year-old can do it. A lot easier than the old NES cartridges, which you had to take out of the console and blow because they wouldn't work first time ever. No, my son's definitely the type of person who would pull the cartridge out without turning the thing off as well. Ooh, you couldn't actually do that with the original NES. You could with the Mega Drive. That was a fault, I guess, because the Mega Drive was a top-loading console, mm. whereas the original NES, it was like a VCR tray that you lifted up, and it was very, very difficult to pull the thing out. Yeah, I never actually tried that myself. Mm. He's quite good at doing it on his 3DS. I'll give him that. He likes to yank the cartridges out on that without turning it off as well. Ooh. I don't really mind because I'm secretly hoping it wipes his Skylanders disc all game. <laughs> I really wouldn't miss that one. He makes me play it occasionally. Like, it's too hard for me, Dad. We do this bit for me. I'm, like, I'm playing in Skylanders. So I take it Skylanders isn't on your list of games tonight then? <laughs> no. I think I'd rather grate my own skin off than play that game if I ever had the choice. Can we hold you to that? Yes, you can actually. If you find me a cheese grate and you ever catch me playing Skylanders, then yes, I will definitely do great some of my own skin off. Right, I'll keep an eye out, I'll just write that down, and I'll keep watching your live streams to make sure you don't stray from the path, because <laughs> this cheese grater here, it's waiting. I'll remind you in the comments, you, cheese no grater's problem. waiting. <laughs> yes, I don't think that's ever going to happen, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, so... I think we'd better crack on with your list of games. What do you say? No problem. And also, what would you like me to call you? Igirisu? Igirisu? Yeah, fine. Rock, Scott gave up on calling me Igirisu a long time ago. He just calls me Roscoe now. Just The first time he tried pronouncing it, I was rolling around laughing watching him. So 
props for Scott on that one. <laughs> so it was very funny and a good effort. Well, thank uh, you very much for not rolling around laughing at my attempts to pronounce it. No, I'm just about to bite my tongue a little bit. <laughs> Excellent. So would you like to furnish us with your first selection for yep. the Desert Island? These aren't in any particular order, and I want to start with Altered Beast. Specifically, actually, the arcade version rather than the Mega Drive version, which I do actually have a genuine copy of this, by the way. <laughs> but the reason why Altered Beast was, I don't know, such fond memories, and I'm never going to sit here and pretend it was the best arcade game ever because it probably isn't. If I had to pick an arcade game, I'd probably pick Sega Rally or Scud Race. I always preferred them. But Altered Beast was just, it was the first arcade I remember being in my local community hall, for want of a better word. And it was, this was like literally 25 years ago, so it was like 10p ago and stuff. And any kind of free time on the weekends or summer holidays, we were all just sat around watching people play Altered Beast. I mean, I could get, I think I got onto the ant level a few times, but I was never the best player. But I just remember fondly watching people play that. And when it was my turn, I'm like, right, I want to remember what so-and-so did and get past their bit. And I always got beat on the ant section. So I was always quite poor on playing that game. Just the fond memories of being there with friends, watching people play this would be a bit sad now to admit that. But at the time, we passed many an hour playing or watching people play Altered Beast on the arcade. And the place where it was is no longer there either in this little village where I grew up. So that, I know, maybe adds to the nostalgia effect a little bit, I suppose. That's interesting that you actually had video game arcade machines in your little village. Because where I lived, we didn't have any at all. I mean, we have... On our high street, at least 60 chippies for 57 shops. None of those would have had arcade machines. In fact, none of them have arcade machines today. I should pop in there and say, hey, get a main machine in here. We can set up a Raspberry Pi and we can (laughs) just spend the hours whiling away our adulthood as we did our youth in those Super Bowls, etc. I've no idea why that machine turned up, really, because the guy who ran it, who was called Mick, you would never have accused him of being the sharpest tool in the box by any stretch of the imagination. And yet, someone was clued up enough to get that in there, and that must have raked him in more money than he ever made selling chomps or cartons <laughs> of Impto. Certainly some holidays, there was a queue for that machine, morning, noon, and night. And I don't think it was his idea, let's put it that way, because he was never that sharp. Well, that's the number one. I mean, I have played the game subsequently on the Mega Drive, and despite remembering it very fondly, it turns out I'm still just as rubbish at playing it. never get very far in it, even knowing the first couple of levels like the back of my hand and exactly when enemies are going to come and which dogs to attack and stuff to get the power-ups. And Yeah, I I do like the game. I just seem very rubbish at playing it for some reason. Especially at ant level, I just never quite get the jumps right. And uh, I will beat it one day without cheating, but one of the reasons why I bought a Mega Drive was I saw it in Cash Generator or a shop of that ilk a long time ago, and I got it for a tenner with Altered Beast, and then it kind of went in a cupboard. So about a year ago, I decided to dig it out and have a go on it. Again, I was just as rubbish then, to be honest, but (laughs) there you go. (laughs) I think a lot of people have a similar story where they go back to a game. I've done it, certainly, where I go back to a game, and I think, I am much, much worse at this than I was as a kid. But there are some games where, take Link to the Past, for example, you remember the little cryptic things that are in there. The first time you play, you get really stuck. Oh, where on earth is this ice one thing? You have no idea. Because you've got to push this block and then go behind this waterfall that you would never, ever think about going into. These little cryptic, 
hidden things. But when you come back to them, you think, oh, there's something in there. And then you go inside and you think, oh, I'm glad that I remembered that. But going back to Altered Beast, sorry, we're not talking about Zelda here, are we? Although, <laughs> I, although I would love to. Going back to Altered Beast, would you say the Mega Drive version pales in comparison to the arcade version? I would, but that's through very heavily rose-tinted glasses, I suspect. I was always led to believe the Mega Drive version was arcade perfect or as close as it could be given the technology of the day and stuff. But it's been that long since I played the arcade version. I couldn't tell you how accurate or not it is. It looks it to me, to my untrained eye, they look very similar and I think that it's pretty, you know, as close as it's ever going to get without buying your own main board and putting it on your telly by it. But yeah, I think it's pretty close. I suppose I'll always remember the arcade version slightly fonder than the Mega Drive version, but like I say, I never wouldn't say it was the best game ever, because it's not, but I just enjoyed it a lot, and I just remember it very fondly. But it, it would be the arcade version if I could help it anyway. Okay, so what was the sampled speech like in the arcade version compared to the Mega Drive version? Because I know online there is a meme. There's a few various dotted pieces of sampled speech in the game, and one of them sounds like this. Of course, the original actor doesn't have a lisp. He's saying it properly, but because of the console's limitations, it sounds like he's, what, what, Jonathan Wasp, why is from your grave? Yeah, he was um, a bit clipped from what I remember, because I think the speakers were poor even by Radio Shack standards, to be honest. It wasn't particularly legit. Even the Mega Drive version's not that great, but you can just about tell what they're saying. But yeah, they do sound a bit more like Jonathan Ross rather than Jonathan Dunbar. <laughs> Welcome to your doom. I did like that, though. I'd been a kind of 8-bit fan, if you will. Speech wasn't something you ever really heard a lot. Certainly, in my case, I never really played on the Game Boy, so there was very rarely any speech, if ever, in fact, in a Game Boy game. So, yeah, it was mm. quite novel. Oh, I remember a couple of games where I believe there was sample speech. The tennis game, which is really, really early Game Boy, one of the first titles, I believe, it said, Out! And I remember being really, really impressed by that. <laughs> Simple out. Yes. It was a good game, though, from what I remember. Spent a few hours on that game. So, number two is going to be The Hunt for Red October on the Game Boy. This is probably going to be the worst game I pick, but this will always be special to me, in a way. Not in a romantic way, obviously. It was the first game I played on a home console, if you will, and it actually belonged to one of my sister's friends. She had the Game Boy, and she was staying over one weekend sleepover type thing. She brought a Game Boy, and it had, the only game she had, for some reason, was The Hunt for Red October. Quite why her parents felt obliged to pick that, or even the person in the shop sold in that, rather than Mario Land or Tetris, I'll never know. But I'd slogged many a sneaky minute on that game. But when I got my own Game Boy, I bought it as well. I never got very far. I think I got the first couple of levels. It was as good as it ever got, because it is actually very difficult. And I've watched people play it on YouTube, and I just think, how are you doing this? I certainly couldn't do it. For those of us out there who haven't played this game, 
Is mm. it a top-down shooter adventure game? It's, it's a shooter. It's more like a side-scrolling shooter, just a slow one because it's underwater. It takes a lot of time to do anything. The submarine, the Red October, which doesn't look that big considering it's supposed to be very big in the actual film, moves very slowly, but you get missiles and torpedoes. So the missiles go for the surface ships that you come up against, which I think from memory, there's not that many of them. There's a lot of the smaller submarines. I mean, in the film, someone's following him from the, on the Russian side, and it's a, well, I think they call it an Alpha-class submarine, and that's the one that pursues you in the game. You've also got other obstacles like fairly narrow passageways to get through and stuff like that. And then there's a lot of mines as well, which are always in the least convenient place possible. Okay. It's just very difficult. Unless you've memorised the entire level, map or whatever, it's difficult to have enough lives, basically, because you just get shot left, right and centre. I mean, the first level is a bit of a throwaway, if you will, that there's not a massive amount of enemies or obstacles but it soon gets very difficult and i think i only get ever got to like level three or something there's no password system or i don't even think there's any continues in it it's like you start with three lives from memory and then you can pick up the odd life here and there but it's three lives and that's it and you get energy refills that sort of thing and upgrade i think you can get no you can't you just get more missiles and more torpedoes you can't actually upgrade them or anything it's a slow side-scrolling shooter i mean you can go left and right if you know there's something worth going back to go and fetch. But basically, you start on the left, and your objective's on the right-hand side, and it's based underwater, but you can get shot from above as well because there's surface ships. I think there might even be helicopters later on as well. I seem to remember on the last level. The last level, I remember watching this guy playing it, and I'm thinking, how are you not cheating? Because there's no way on God's earth I'd have been able to get through all that without pulling my hair out or launching the Game Boy somewhere. But because it was one of the first games I ever played, certainly the first I ever played at home, I'd seen Pac-Man or Missile Command on holiday in massive arcade cabinets, and then my sister's friend comes down with this tiny little grey device, or it felt tiny at the time, and this game where I could go wherever I wanted, to a degree, obviously, shoot all these baddies and pretend I was in... Because I'd seen the film as well, so I knew how to kind of visualise what it would have been like if you were in the film sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, I just remember it very fondly. But again... Far from being on anyone's ever top ten list of any kind of game, even movie tie-ins, it would be probably near the bottom, but just rose-tinted glasses again. I have played it a few times on, what's it called, Visual Boy or whatever it's called, on on Windows. Yes. And it's ten minutes and I'm like, right, just enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just yeah. crap at this game. It was 100% rose-tinted, was it? It was so rose-tinted, it was, it was basically deep red and you couldn't even <laughs> see through it. That's how rose-tinted the glasses were on that one. So you say you watched somebody else complete this game. Did this person just so happen to be playing the game at an event called Awesome Games Done Quick? I wish. I wish. (laughs) I mean, I think ADGQ is one of the most fantastic things on YouTube. I'm not very knowledgeable about YouTube, and I don't care about all these people who show me how to eat properly or put makeup on or sing and all that shite that I don't find them entertaining. Awesome Games Done Quick is something I genuinely look forward to every six months now that they do it. I think watching these guys, I think, Jesus wept, you must just practice and practice and practice and practice some more when you wake up the next morning because they get through them games so much quicker than I ever could. The thing is with those guys, they have so much more motivation to do that than I ever could. 
Now, basically, I'm past it in terms of being a video gamer. My best years are past me, I'm afraid, yeah. Possibly when I was 15, 16 years old, I would have had the stamina to sit there and play Super Mario Brothers 3, the same levels, over and over again. Actually, no, I would never have had that sort of stamina. I probably would have smashed the controller and gone out to play football or something. I was very, very frustrated as a kid with these video games. I got very annoyed with them. But yes, the stamina that it takes to constantly play the same level over and over again, to improve your time by a fraction of a second, that takes some proper skill. I'm not saying that's a waste of your time. In fact, it's a very, very good use of your time because these guys for AGDQ now, I believe the last one raised over $1 million for cancer charity. Like you say, the determination and the ability to replay the same level to work out that you get a slight speed boost from bouncing off one enemy in a certain way or cancelling your sword swipe on Ninja Gaiden just boggles my mind. I was never that bothered, I don't think. Well, one thing that totally amazes me, and I think we talked about this the last time that you were with me on a podcast, with Super Mario Kart. And that's one game that I constantly go back to and watch particular speedrunners play it fast. Because as a game that I've played hours, hours on end as a kid, I can really relate to that and appreciate why they're really, really good. I believe the current All Cups record for Super Mario Kart is something like 30 minutes. Now, imagine trying to play the 150cc and winning all the cups one after the other in 30 minutes. I mean, I haven't managed that in 30 years. So, no, I was going to say, it take me 30 minutes just to do the Mushroom Cup, whatever the first one is. <laughs> yeah, on 50cc probably as well. Oh, yeah. These uh, days. I, I have a love-hate relationship with Mario Kart. I love what Nintendo did with it, and I loved the excitement or interest it brought in the Super Nintendo, but I fucking hate that game. <laughs> yes, this is why I brought this up, because I know you have some history with it. <laughs> I've put in a large number of hours in this game, and I just can't get past how much it cheats. Mm. It will forever be always something I hold against Nintendo, that one. Now, I thought the two-player battle mode was absolutely the best thing since sliced bread when I first played it, and I used to torture my sister for hours playing it, force bribing her to come like come on i'll buy you some sweets or whatever if you play with me for half an hour but <laughs> that was one of the best two-player experiences i've ever had certainly on a 16-bit machine the one player though and certainly on my daughter's ds of my life that tests my patience no end you can spend the best two laps of your life and the last minute you get bombs and missiles and red shells right up your jacksie and that's it. You just sit there spinning around watching everyone sail past you. And I'm like, just remembering that the device I'm holding was 100 quid and I don't want to really want to break it, but if I could, I would. <laughs> well, but, the guys at the last AGDQ, they're so good that they can get two or three laps ahead of all the other competitors by the last lap. So they don't even need to bother about that sort of thing, about people coming back on the last lap and sniping you with a red shell or getting the lightning because... Uh, seconds, maybe even a minute ahead. Right, their, their skill level on that game is not even like I'm playing the same game. I look at them and I think, all right, I can play as that Bowser, say, or Donkey Kong. And I watch them play and I'm thinking, all my life, how, how are they keeping the speed up so high? I can't even, I won't even be on the same lap when they finished if we played them in a race. What I did enjoy, one of the first videos I ever watched on AGDQ was a guy playing Mario Kart 64, and he basically finished it in about 10 minutes because 
he'd worked out on bar about two of the races, there was a way to shortcut it by kind of starting and then going left and then glitching at a certain point. And then be like, each race would be 20 seconds because you could glitch a lap in like eight seconds. And I, I did get a lot of satisfaction from watching that. Just sticking two fingers up to Nintendo saying, yeah. Oh, yes. There's a lot of those in all the Mario Kart games, I do believe, especially Super Mario Kart. If you watch the guys at AGDQ, you can pick them all up. I remember, sorry, going off on a slight tangent here. We will get back to the actual games in a minute. But in the old CVG magazines, they had the yellow pages in the middle and they would print cheats and high scores and things in there. It was supposed to be a pull-out extra section printed on toilet paper, basically. But it was fun. It was my favorite part of the magazine. And somebody submitted a bunch of times for Super Mario Kart. They could get a one-second lap on Choco Island 2. And I thought, (laughs) how the hell is that possible? And I spent at least an hour trying to improve my time. And I improved my time by about three or four seconds. But it was still nowhere near one second. (laughs) Turns out what they were doing is using the feather to jump over the wall at a certain point in the lap and glitching the game out to make it think that you completed the whole lap. If you jump at a very specific point, then you can cross the line again and complete the whole lap in a second. That's how they did it. That's very satisfying. Yeah. That would be for me. I only figured this out after watching, well, YouTube videos in 2005, 2006, when it got launched. But it remained a mystery to me for about 15 years as to how the heck these guys managed to get one second laps. On a similar subject, I used to get, I forget what, it, what magazine it was. It must have been play, official PlayStation magazine or something when the original Gran Turismo came out. And everyone used to like this track. I forget what it was called. One of the first tracks. Was it the High Speed Ring? Was it, yeah. And they used to post times of them playing with the Castrol Supra GT. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, they'd be like four or five seconds a lot quicker than me. No matter how perfect my laps were, you know, I'd do whatever it was, three or four laps, absolute full speed, nailing every corner, coming out as fast as you possibly could without spinning. And I was like, how how are they doing this? Yeah. I don't believe it was possible to glitch it in this case, but yeah, I know the feeling of just grinding the same track over and over again and thinking, how the hell are they going so quick? <laughs> here's a tip, ladies and gentlemen. If you've never played Gran Turismo and want to play it, here's how to break the game. You get to a certain point where you can buy a car called the Mitsubishi GTO LM Edition, I believe it's called, the racing modification. Then you soup it up to max, to over a 1,000 horsepower, and then you can just blitz the competition. The high-speed ring, I figured out as a kid, you don't even need to use the brake button. You only need to use it twice in the whole lap because you can just glide around the corners, glide around the bankings, and then cheat. You can still win, even though he's smashing into them at 100 miles an hour because <laughs> there's no damage in the game. My favourite one for that was in the second game. It was it a Scudo Pikes Peak version. It had this yes. ridiculous, massive wing on it. Driving that around was so much... All right, top-end speed, it wasn't actually that great, but... It accelerated so quickly. It was like a flipping stabbed rat and just cracked on everyone else from a great height. Once you got that car, that was all you ever needed because you just thrashed everything. Apart from that, was it the high-speed ring that's like straight for a mile and then hairpin-type corner and then another straight? Some of the faster ones, the GT1 cars, could catch up with you on that. But, oh, man, going around some of the normal circuits in that, it was just a wild ride. Yeah. Well, they had a similar car in Grand Turismo 5. My mum got it for me Christmas a couple of years ago. And she got me the 
GT Academy Edition or something it was called, but it had this Red Bull prototype car in it. If you've never played Gran Turismo 5, get it and get that car. It's it's like a fly around the track. Because apparently Red Bull did design it and said this would work in real life kind of thing. But the, the acceleration and the braking are just so much better than anything else. It takes you about a year to learn how to use it because nothing else compares. Mm-hmm. Anyway, a massive tangent there on about Gran yeah. Turismo. A final point on that. I would say that it's good that they put cars in like that because it gives us stuff to talk about, doesn't it? One car that breaks the whole game. One car, one ring to rule them all. Oh, yeah. I mean, if it wasn't for the fact that Gran Turismo, and like, I've noticed in Forza 5 that I've been playing with my son on his Xbox One, if it wasn't for the fact they had classes that only allowed certain cars in, you would thrash everything with that car. That Suzuki, you would have do, you could win any yep. endurance race. You'd be winning by literally tens of laps by the end of it because you're just so quick. Yes, a shout out, a huge shout out to the Escudo Pikes. Yeah, I tell you what, you want to try looking for pictures of that thing in real life on the internet. There's not many. There really isn't. It's like it never. If it wasn't in Gran Turismo, no one would have ever heard of it. Because there's apart from a couple of pictures from like 1980s flipping Pikes Peaks things, there's hardly any proof it ever existed. I've seen videos of it. I do. Have you? Yeah. Oh, I'm gonna have to. You have to send me a link to that because I've looked a few times and never found anything. I shall indeed. Actually. Ross, do you have any racing games in your list by any chance? I do, actually. I have Rock and Roll Racing on the Super Nintendo. There is, I'm afraid, a kind of Nintendo slant to this list, which is mainly because Game Boy and Super Nintendo were the two systems I actually owned in the heyday, if you will. Mm-hmm. But Rock and Roll Racing, I thought, was the best racing game on the Super Nintendo. Close second, if like an honourable mention, for want of a better phrase, to Street Racer, which was a very good rip-off of Super Mario Kart, but Rock and Roll Racing got it for me because I enjoyed the fact you could actually shoot people. That really worked for me. I like the fact you could upgrade your car if you were clever enough to win and collect all the pickups. And obviously, the thing that everyone remembers is how good the music was, which for oh, a yeah. Super Nintendo game, it was awesome. How did you first find out about Rock and Roll Racing? Were you bought the game? Or did you, for example, see it on television? <laughs> no, that one was one I... No, actually, no, you're correct. I think I actually probably saw it on Games Master first, and I would have bought the corresponding magazine with the review in it, thinking mm-hmm. that sounds really good. And I did, that was um, not quite a day one purchase, but that was a full price, 40 quid. Got home sweaty handed from the local toy shop where I got it from, and yeah, I spent a lot of time playing that game, and I thought it was brilliant. I have played it again since, and for some reason, on one of my older YouTube channels, it's by far the most popular video, so. I presume I'm not the only person who thinks of it fondly, but even playing it, I still think it plays really well. It does copy kind of from RC Pro-Am on the Nintendo and the Game Boy that Rare did a long time ago. But I think it's better, personally. The handling's sharp. The graphics are... Because it uses fairly simplistic sprites, if you will, It gives and it, the tracks are quite simple and small. It allows it to be quite smooth, and, and the colours are all very vivid and stuff, and I just think it works very well together. Okay. I've never actually played Rock and Roll Racing, so can you just briefly explain to me in a sentence what it's about, maybe? Isometric racing game, four of you on the track, you can shoot your opponents, awesome soundtrack. I think they're actually, officially they called them cover versions of very well-known songs. I'm not sure how Interplay got away with it, but you'll recognise all the songs as being rock songs, if you will, hence Mm. the name Rock and Roll Racing. I think back then, companies were a lot less strict on the copywriting. We saw it with the early football games from 93, 4, 5, 
people would just shove real copyrighted names like Manchester United, Liverpool FC, franchise names like that into the game and the real player names without any permission whatsoever from anyone. But then, I believe in 94, when the Premier League came in, they decided, right, we're going to make some money out of this. And we're surprise, gonna surprise. Yeah, we're going to license out player names. And I'm wondering if it's much the same where in the music industry, they thought, ah, these video games, they're getting pretty popular. We can make a little bit of money out of this. And the technology is getting better such that we can emulate, we can cover songs like Bad to the Bone in our video games. And it sounds pretty good. And I must say, the tracks in Rock and Roll Racing are some of the best tracks, actually, on the console. Top five, I'd say. Yeah, certainly the audio is definitely the thing. If you ever ask someone to say the first thing that pops in your head, rock and roll racing, it's probably the soundtrack before the actually very good racing, in my opinion. I think you're right about Interplay must have been quite canny about this, realising that you know YouTube didn't exist, the internet didn't exist, so they couldn't really say, the record labels would have had a hard time. The only thing they could have done would have been to take them to court and say, right, pay us some royalties. They certainly weren't going to be able to recall the games or update the software or anything to change it. So, yeah, I think Interplay got away with that one, to be honest. Yeah, that's definitely on my list, that one. Okay. I did mention earlier about television, and this is one game that was featured heavily on the Hewland shows, Games Master and Games World. And I would wonder if this is one of the reasons why it was a popular game in the UK, alongside things like Bomberman, and oh, what else did they use? The various other different titles, like James Pond 2, which wasn't really such a good game. But I bet you, I bet you it sold like hotcakes because it was on Games Master. Well, I think it was pirated like hotcakes in the case of James Pond 2, because the friend of mine who had an Amiga, I don't think he bought a legit game his entire life. Oh, okay. I think <laughs> I'm, actually, I'm thinking of James Pond, the athletics one, the silly sports one. What's it called? The Olympic Games one, basically. It was a terrible game. It must have been, because I don't even, didn't even know that existed, to be honest. Ah, well, I guess, Hewland, you've done a bad job then. Do you remember some of the games they had on their shows, though? I used to think that they had got into the code, if you will, and got the game in such a way that it would finish. Like, say, you had to collect the 100 Rings Challenge on Sonic. I always used to think, at the time, watching it, that they'd actually got all the Sega and said, right, we want a copy of this game, but all we want is the first level... And we want it to finish, basically, when they've got 100 rings. And then I found some guy who actually put together a playlist on YouTube of all the episodes from different people. It wasn't him who would have uploaded them all, but he put this playlist together. And then watching them all, you think, actually, all you did was pause it at the right time. And yep. then this, the sap, he was sat in front going for the golden joystick, just pressed play, and away they went. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. exactly how it worked. Guru Larry has told me that on some of these old shows, what they used to have to do was employ a video games player to come in and play the game through to that level without dying. Say they started on level 3-1 or something. They'd have to get somebody to play through to that level with the correct number of rings or whatever so they could start the challenge afresh. And I'm guessing that itself would have taken maybe an hour. It depends how good the games player was, but I'm thinking... Yeah, certainly, certainly if you want a, a later level in like Super Mario Bros. 3 or something, it, it wouldn't have been a quick transition between... You know, we see it in like 30 minutes on the TV, but yeah, you're right. I bet it took them forever to actually key it all together and get it all lined up. Well, the best one, just on a quick aside on Games Master, was the episode when Dave Perry, him of the bandana fame, went up against some guy playing Super Mario 64. 
Oh, yes. Did you ever see this when it was on? Or have you ever watched it since? Oh, yeah. I never actually saw it at the time. I don't think I remember watching it at the time. But I since then... Brilliant. Oh, did you actually watch yeah. it live? I just remember that I was thinking... I, for some reason, I never really liked Dave Perry. I don't know why. It wasn't a personal thing, because obviously I'd never met the guy. But I always thought he was a little bit smug. And I suppose it was a kind of jealousy that he got to play video games for a living and I had to go to school. But when when he got thrashed on that and then he proper spat his dummy out, I was laughing my head off. Well, apparently the reason he didn't do very well was a political reason. He didn't have access to the game, or rather he refused to have access to the game until it came out in the UK. He could have imported it because it was the biggest import of the year. Super Mario 64, because Dominic said in the interview afterwards, oh, it's the biggest game of the year, and you've never played it. I'll play it when it comes out, Dominic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've read a couple of interviews with him, because he's a tattoo guy in Devon or something now, or Cornwall. Yes. Yeah, but yeah, that was the gist of it, that because he wasn't officially out in the UK, he, on principle, he refused to play it, and then he went up against this other guy who apparently had been smoking cannabis before they shot the segment, <laughs> and got his... Ass handed to him on that penguin slide thing, and he was yeah. I, I, I haven't read both sides of the story because I know Dominic Diamond's quite reluctant to talk about it. Now, in retrospect, I feel sorry for him because he did get stitched up. And Eve apparently they filmed it in some warehouse in the middle of nowhere. It wasn't even like central London. It was out in Greater London somewhere. And he said he was that cheesed off. He refused to do any more commentaries where he stood with Dominic Diamond and said, "Oh, you've got to do this, this, and this to win." Mm. He was apparently supposed to do a couple more or something, and he said, right, no, stuff this, I'm going. And he said he just walked out, and then they wouldn't even ring him a taxi, and he had to like basically walk back from yeah. the middle of nowhere back to London. So I, I, in the end, I felt sorry for him, but in terms of retro gaming golden TV moments, that was definitely one of them. Yes, definitely. I wish I could have seen it at the time. And just a quick plug, if you want to watch myself and Scott Bailey's commentary of this episode, please toddle along to the Retro Unlim YouTube channel, where basically Scott just spends the time saying, what an effing bitch. What an effing bitch. It's brilliant. You've got to go <laughs> yeah, and watch it. Watch that. I did, I've watched a few of them, and they are pretty priceless, I've got to say. <laughs> but since then, Scott has made up with... Dave Perry, because he's spoken to him on Facebook about it and apologised, but oh, I doubt very much that Dave Perry would have seen that, that commentary. No, <laughs> it was up, high up in his list of priorities. <laughs> yes. Right, so, are any of the other games on your list frequently featured on Games World? Games Master, rather? Uh, I'm sure Super Mario World's been on there before now, which is also on my list. That one makes a list because it was one of the games I got with my Super Nintendo and it is arguably one of the best top 10, top 15 games of all time. And that one, I'm more inclined to say I enjoyed playing it rather than I was good at it. I did eventually manage all 96 exits, and I did manage to do it. Because I remember reading somewhere, like a couple of years after I got it, that you could get to Bowser in like 15 minutes. And I was like, right, how do you do it? So I bought countless magazines with guides to Super Mario World, so I finally <laughs> found out that you needed to get to the first two Switch Palaces things, and then you could do this dodgy shortcut around Star Road. And I thought, well, I know how to do that. So I did pretty much do everything you could possibly do in Super Mario World. Now, I have watched on AGDQ some guys playing Super Mario World since then. Their precision and timing and ability to basically piss through levels that used to take me hours to do is staggering. Watching those guys do any percent playthrough races is phenomenal. And if you've ever played Super Mario World, you should watch one of those, those videos because... Those guys are dedicated. 
the way they read the level and they practice it and practice it. When you're playing it yourself, you think, right, I need to do this, this, and this. And yet it rarely comes off. Certainly in my experience, I usually get caught up on a Cooper Trooper or whatever. The perfect run gets effed up in some way halfway through the level. But these guys just steam through the whole game and they don't miss it. Don't you know? They don't miss a beat the entire way through for like 15, 18 minutes, whatever it takes them to finish it. And I'm like, this is phenomenally good game playing. I remember buying a magazine back then that basically outlined every single one of the secret exits. So I could complete the game pretty easily. I had no qualms whatsoever about using a guide because I never ever saw that as cheating because you got into school the next day and you said, well, look, uh-huh, I've played the game and I didn't use any cheats and I've done it. <laughs> you still had to actually go and play it though, even, even knowing a kind of shortcut, if you will. I mean, one thing I would say about certainly Nintendo games from that era, they were pretty solid. There wasn't many game-breaking glitches in there. I mean, it turns out you can actually finish Super Mario World in about three minutes to do with manipulating the RAM. It's worth watching because it's about three minutes 40, and they rewrite RAM by using Yoshi to kind of fuck with the memory, pardon my French, and they write their own code or something. And then it's, it's spectacularly difficult how they do it. But, I mean, again, how it occurred to someone to try doing this is a beggar's belief, but they can do it. We didn't know, I mean, it wasn't certainly something I ever thought about. Mm. Even knowing a shortcut, like you could go around the, the map normally to get to Bowser's Castle. You could skip Star Castle and the hidden chocolate area ghost houses and stuff. You could miss them completely. And I didn't, like I say, I didn't think it was cheating. It was just you were playing the game without necessarily exploring every nook and cranny available. Now, you knew that the flashing red dot meant there was two exits on that level. The Nintendo were at least kind enough to give you a clue. But some of them were far from obvious, and if you didn't know to go and look for it, like by reading a magazine, you would have missed it in some cases, mm. that's for sure. Oh yes, definitely. And regarding the wrong warps, I believe is one term that they've been christened as. Only in the emulator's age can we actually go back and do things like that, because as you say, who would have ever thought, apart from actually the developers, in fact, not even the developers would have ever intended to do something like that. It's no. only... It's only by analysing the ROM of the game and going through it and this extreme precision of trying to cut a second off your finishing time that people go into the code and think, how can I improve my game by a fraction of a second? And then they pour through all the hex codes, etc. And look, aha, there's a bit of a flaw there. We can use that to write the code. And I would also recommend this particular video Basically, what happens is they complete the first two levels of Yoshi's Island, go back to the first one, I believe, kick a few Coopers around, get Yoshi, and get a one-up, is that correct, in a certain position at a certain time, hit start, and you can get the credit screen. So, is that a cheat? I don't know. I don't know. It's certainly not something the developers ever intended, and like you say, I bet they didn't even know you could do it. Because, again... Because it was um, a cartridge, certainly in the case of Super Mario World, you know, unless you had either a lot of money or happened to work somewhere that had all the equipment necessary, you weren't, you know, the average person like you or me, they certainly couldn't rip the ROM and then look at the source code and think, right, doing this at such a point does that to the RAM and all that sort of stuff, you know? You can do it now because, like, they've been ripped and all that stuff. But, yeah, back then, if someone did do it back in, whatever, early 90s, it would have been, <laughs> they would have been very, very bored and they certainly wouldn't have been able to record it. 
Look, I'm going to stick my neck out and say nobody would have ever been able to do that in the 90s. We wouldn't have had the technology and nobody would have had the time or even the inclination <laughs> to do something like that well, unless unless there was a competition for which the prize was a million dollars who could complete Super Mario World the fastest. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of similar to Super Mario World, but in black and white, was Super Mario Land. Again, this is a part of the Nintendo element to this my list of games, but it was just a game I got with my Game Boy, and it wasn't the best Mario game. Possibly the one I enjoyed the most, because it was so short. I mean, I can get through it in about 14 and a half minutes. Now, this is actually the one game I've played, or own, and still do own, actually, that I would consider attempting a proper speedrun of. If I could okay. ever work out what software you need to do... There's a timer you need, apparently, for a speed demo archive for it to count as a legit yep. attempt. But this is one game I would actually be prepared to have a go at. It is quite simple. There's only, what is it, five, four levels? Yeah, or I think four, there's only... Four worlds, yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would have a tilt at this one, because I can... I think I'm within about a minute of what they do like on AGDQ and stuff. Oh, that's not bad. Have you posted videos on your channel of this yet? No. I did actually get to the point where I recorded the first two worlds, which went really well. It went really pear-shaped on World 3-1 or something, and I was like, right, giving up now. <laughs> do you use save states for that, or do you just play it through in one single segment? Super Mario Land is one that I wouldn't ever use a save state for. The levels are so short. If I was playing Super Mario Bros. 3, or Super, even Super Mario World, there are certain levels that are a bitch basically there's one i remember on star world where you've got to keep catching balloons and you float along and you've got to avoid these dudes kicking footballs at you oh, i remember yes. tearing some serious hair out playing that level as an example but no super mario land is that short and i hesitate to use the word easy but straightforward if you will that i don't personally use safe states on that one the lives are quite easy to cut you I mean one ups you don't get in the level but you get the opportunity at the end of most of them to get three or four i mean if you've never finished one run through of Super Mario Land and you've had like 30 odd lives left over then you've not been trying hard enough <laughs> but again it's not the best Mario game by any stretch and there's not a lot of secrets it's just good clean fun basically okay it's short you can do it everyone's done it twice in like you know 30 minutes and got the level selecting stuff it's not particularly complicated just quite good fun certainly for car journeys which I think is what the Game Boy was kind of intended for if you will or train journeys you could certainly breeze through it before you reach Carlisle Station. Carlisle Station. <laughs> Where's that from? <laughs> well, that was going up from uh, going up to see my relatives in Edinburgh, so Carlisle was like halfway. Oh, okay, right. Ah, yeah. Way back when. Oh, I've definitely played Super Mario Land in the car. Probably the batteries ran out halfway, so... Have you ever noticed that on the Game Boy where the batteries are starting to run out? They don't just go all at once. The screen just starts to fade. And you think, slowly, yeah. No, <laughs> no, I've got to finish the game before. And it's too late. It's futile. It's just gone. I think after the first two or three times that happened, I, I could have sworn I convinced my mum to spend like 20 quid on a cigarette lighter adapter for it. So that when, you, when they started fading, like, right, give me that lead. <laughs> plug it in and carry on. 
Yes, we had one of those as well for a bit. My brother was a little bit obsessed with his Game Boy, so yeah, we managed to get one of those. Tetris, you could spend quite a lot of time playing Tetris in, as a in like one game. I mean, if you're having a proper good go at it, you could spend like 30, 40 minutes playing it. It doesn't speed up when you get to level 10, but you know when you were good at that or on the ball, it would be ages you're playing that. And sometimes, I'll be honest, I just got bored. Of Tetris? No, not of the game in general, but like you're on the game and you've got like 2 million points. You think, can I really be bothered going for 4 million? It's like, right, I'll just see which rocket I get this time. Were you any good at Tetris? I got a million if you're a handful of times. Oh, I think I was okay. I was never world champion, but I, you know, I don't think the principle is difficult to pick up. You've got the different shapes all made up of four blocks. You stick them together, and when you make a line, that disappears. I like to think I was quite good at certainly on the, the opening 60 odd drops that I could save up and get Tetris every time once um, a, a long one came along. But I wasn't, I was never champion at school or anything. There was people at my school who had. Game Boys like me would link them and they would just paste me into the ground, basically. Oh. Yeah, that's basically what it was there for, that, isn't it? So your flipping school friends could hammer you into the ground. Because ah. that one, there was a F1 race being the only four-player game on the Game Boy that I remember. It was a Game Boy multi-tap that there was a um, posh... I was going to say rich kid in my class, but he was... I don't think he was that well. Anyway, a <laughs> lot of a story. He did have a four-player multi-tap thing for the Game Boy and we, we all had a copy of F1 race and he was very annoyingly good at it. I mean, he was like half a lap ahead of me every time we finished the race. But yeah, the game, the F1 race was quite good for that. Obviously, it wasn't split screen or anything, but yeah, it was for whatever, 1990 or whatever it was, it was pretty good. Could you do four-player Tetris? I know you could do two-player in there. I don't think so. It's been that long since I've actually been into the Game Boy. I've forgotten quite a lot, so I wouldn't like to swear for definite, but I think Tetris was two-player. Mm. Yeah, I do remember it, Pin. Right, unfortunately, uh, time is ticking down slowly, so I will push you on to your next selection. What would you like to pick next, sir? The last one would be only partially Nintendo biased, that's Super Smash TV. Now, I had the Super Nintendo version, actually the American version. Uh, my mum got me from Holiday, but I do believe it's available on the Mega Drive. Again, simple basis for the game. You go in the room and you've got unlimited ammo. You can get weapon upgrades like Contra-type weapon upgrades really and the, it worked quite well on the Super Nintendo because the way the buttons were configured A would shoot right, X would shoot up, Y would shoot left and B would shoot down mm-hmm. and especially with two of you it was quite a lot of fun. I believe the spiritual successor was Zombie Ate My Neighbours but I did have that and I got the humour in it I just never found it as much fun. Super Smash TV to me was just, I hesitate to use the phrase mindless but you could just plow on basically and see how far I could get. I could always get to the end of the third level, but never got very far on my own. But yeah, I did enjoy that one a lot. I didn't get that till quite late in the kind of Super Nintendo shelf life, if you will. Mm. But I just found that a lot of fun. This is obviously another game that started out in the arcades. Yes, so it did. have you played the arcade game? I have, but only because I had the Super Nintendo version that I think I would possibly have missed it in the arcades before I bought Super Smash TV. I was given it rather... But once I owned it and, I went, and then I saw the logo, I would kind of like look out for the logo. And Super, oh, I'll have a go on Super Smash TV. I have to say, I actually found it more difficult on the arcade only because I wasn't used to shooting with a joystick. I was used to pressing buttons and that kind of messed me up a bit. But yeah, it was a good arcade game. It was bright, it was brash, it was mindless violence, which is what the Americans like. And it was a midway game. So yeah, even though Beam Software were Australian, I believe. But anyway, yeah, I did play on the arcade. I didn't enjoy it as much though, to be honest. 
Oh, okay. Well, I will say there's a good conversion of the arcade version of Super Smash TV on the PlayStation. Is it on the Midway Classics disc? I think I couldn't so. tell you. I, I would be amazed if it wasn't, because it was a Midway game. Well, the arcade version was, anyway. Given the PlayStation has always had a good button layout, and also the Xbox, to be honest. Their button layout's quite good for Super Smash TV, or Smash TV, whatever you want to call it. Mm, it is a very, very difficult game to pick up, as you said. If you're used to playing stuff like Super Mario Brothers, then that really did throw me off at first. And the amount of deaths that you go through, it's one of those Twitch games, I think. I'm not really a Twitch gamer. I don't like the games where you've got to do these quick reactions in a short sequence, like the shoot 'em ups I'm not good at those. My brain doesn't process them very well. The secret to Smash TV, in my experience was a case of you didn't actually watch your player. You had to kind of know where he was, and you were actually watching out for baddies that would come into the room that were a pain in the backside where they were dressed like in the War of Independence, like red tunics on them, white crosses on them. I forget what they were called now. They used to blow up. Mr. Shrapnel, that was it. And they'd blow up, in, but the shrapnel would go in like eight directions. So you had to watch out for that, and then you were just kind of watching out where the next gang of hoodlums or whatever is coming from. The trick was not to watch your own character, it was to anticipate where the biggest threat was and take care of that, but that was, well, that was in my, that's my top tip for that game, anyway. Roscoe's don't... top tips. Yes. <laughs> I'm actually done now with Nintendo games. The next two, well, oh. nearly. Now, the last one that was on the Super Nintendo, but I never played it on that, was Desert Strike. Not so subtle a rip-off of the original Gulf War by Electronic Arts, not that they're famous at all for cashing in on things like this. Not at all. No, I thought Desert Strike was fantastic. I don't believe it's on many top 20 lists, but for me it would actually be because I thought the first mission, you get the background, like you're in the Gulf and you're going after a baddie who doesn't at all look like Saddam Hussein and you're not in Iraq at all, (laughs) you're not in a desert country, but you can blow things like oil pipelines and none of the buildings look like Iraqi buildings or anything. (laughs) But I did like... I'd liked the view, the like kind of isometric view. I don't know why I like isometric games, I just do. But I liked the isometric view of the helicopter, I like the jinking, I like the three different weapons, or the you know, machine gun and then two different missiles. I love the idea of hidden fuel and hidden ammo and armor and stuff. And the first couple of missions were quite easy. You didn't really need to plan about your fuel. You didn't need to think, right, I'll you know, write anything down. Whereas in the last couple, if you weren't cheating, which we didn't, there were Desert Strike is one of the few games I never cheated on to finish. You needed to really think, you had to practice basically, because you did need to know where all the fuel was and take it into account, because it was a bit tight on that game. And it was quite a good challenge, I thought, at the end. The music was so so, the sound effects were quite good. Certainly the effects of the helicopter, kind of like he's dropping his winch and stuff, they were all quite good. I mean, it's quite a solid game. I don't remember it being glitchy or anything. And there was a password system which unsurprisingly for EA, did allow you to cheat, basically. You could get more lives, or since you could get access to all the co-pilots straight away, so you had one guy who was, like, flipping Deadeye with the gun and winched like his life depended on it, which mm. could make life easier. But yeah, Desert Strike makes my list. I wonder if they give you that password system, because it is such a challenging game. And I do remember that being one of those games I rented as a kid, and quite enjoying the sort of context and the idea of, but really, really struggling with the game itself. It wasn't easy. After, Like I said, the first mission will ease you into the game and we will show you where everything is. We'll give you a couple of hard enemies, if you will, but mostly they're just like guys standing there with a spud gun. And then you soon start getting up against the you know, missile carriers and guys with bazookas and, you know, 
But the reason why I like Desert Strike, I think it's because I liked Jungle Strike and then, was it Nuclear Strike on the PlayStation as well, where you started changing vehicles and stuff. I thought that was really good as well. Which one did you play first then? I played Desert Strike because my friend got it on his Mega Drive, like okay. kind of like day one. And then we took a couple of weeks to finish that. And then we ended up buying, we bought between us Jungle Strike because he was reluctant to get it for 40 quid because he was a bit of a tight house, to be honest. So I ended up offering to go halves with him because I really wanted to play it. We bought Jungle Strike day one, and we finished it the day we got it. That one, we, for some reason, found that quite easy. So we ended up taking that back and swapping it for something else. But Yeah, I've played them all. I, no, actually, that's not true. I didn't play Soviet Strike for some reason. I did play Nuclear Strike on the PS1. and I'd skipped Soviet Strike for some reason. I'm sure Urban Strike was the one, wasn't it? Yes, I have it. Jungle Strike, Urban Strike, and Desert Strike for the Mega Drive. Yeah, they're excellent. Desert Strike is... Wor- I wouldn't quite say it's worth persisting with because I don't remember like the ending being particularly great or feeling that awesome once I've done it. But if you do want to get far on it, you only do like a kind of sketch map, if you will, of where everything is once you uncover. Because on the last couple of missions or levels, whatever you want to call them, nearly everything's hidden away. So you've got to you lose a lot of fuel, based more than anything, just blowing everything up to try and find it. Now, once you know where it is, then it's it's a bit easier. But when you first do it, you need a pen and paper basically because you need to know where everything is. I guess lots of games around that time would have needed pen and paper. Not naming any names, <laughs> a link to the past. Sorry, yes, you were going to move on to your next game, I believe. The that. last one on my Desert Island games is Ninja Spirit on the PC Engine. Now, this the reason why I've been playing I had never heard of this. And I listened to a gaming podcast about four months ago, and it was dedicated to Ninja games. So they had like a list of Ninja games. So I did play Ninja Gaiden 2 on the NES on the Retro Pie, and I thought that was excellent. But this one... Ninja Spirit on the PC Engine or Turbo Graphics 16 or whatever you flavor you want to call it. I think it's. I just. I don't know. I can't explain. I find it a lot of fun. I like the way you get the shadow guys, like you get on Ninja Gaiden. It's bright. It's very smooth. It's pretty quick for a PC Engine game. And it's just a lot of fun. What is for me? I mean, the other game I should have mentioned, maybe if PS1 doesn't quite count as retro yet, but I did. I've always liked Tenshu 1 on the PS1. And I don't know, since then I've always liked ninja games, and this one just appeals to me more than anything else. If you've got the ability to play, emulate or buy a PC engine, then get hold of Ninja Spirit, because I think it's very good. Now, again, I think it's unlikely to make anyone's top 20 list of all time kind of things, but if you've got a PC engine then or the ability to play the games from that engine, then definitely get a copy of this, because it's very good. Well, I bet you that Ninja Spirit is nowhere near as good as Ninja Hamster for the Amstrad CPC. I think I've heard of that, actually. These, I think these guys mentioned it in this podcast that there was this hamster game and it was just completely bonkers. <laughs> yes. Oh, I should have picked that for one of my Desert Island games. I wonder if I can swap Fruit Machine for it. Fruit actually, Machine? No. What you pick that for? <laughs> because it's quite simply the greatest game that ever existed. I actually have 16 games here on this island with me. Because oh, right, so you've got Double Bubble, have you? Yeah, I've got Double because I've been on this show twice. Right. <laughs> I got to pick twice. So, yeah, I can swap one, I do believe. I'm getting bored of Fruit Machine. Yeah. Right, so Ninja Spirit, PC Engine. Bit of a hidden gem, would you say? Yeah, in Britain, anyway, the PC Engine was never released. I understand it was imported kind of on the grey market in France, which was the, would be kind of the easiest for us in Britain to get a hold of. But it was never officially kind of supported by... Is it NEC who made it in Britain or in, Fran- or in Europe at all, from what I can gather? 
So they, they're a bit thin on the ground, and I've always wanted one. When, when you used to get CVG or Games Master or Mean Machine magazine, and there used to be a couple of companies that would always advertise every month about the games and the consoles, and I always remember looking at Neo Geo was one that I always wanted, but more realistically, PC Engine was the one I looked at. I thought, I really want one of them. Now, I'm not inclined to pay the money they're going for on eBay UK, but I'm certainly the retro pie for one of the many benefits is that I've been able to start playing through some of the catalogue of very good games. I mean, not many third party publishers supported the PC engine, sadly. But one company that did a lot of games was Hudson Soft and the their Bomberman games. I think it's Bomberman ninety four is absolutely fantastic. I mean, I've played Super Bomberman on a multi tap for hours and hours and played it to death. And I've even on Super Zap Gaming, I did a playthrough with Super Bomberman 1 or 2. I can't remember which one it was. But Bomberman 94 on the PC Engine is by far the best one I've ever played. Just to digress ever so slightly there about PC Engines. I'd also say that as well. The Mega Drive equivalent, which is Mega Bomberman. It's actually my favourite Bomberman game. I think that is Bomberman 94, by the way. Yeah, it is. I think it's exactly the same. And that is by far my favourite Bomberman game because of the extra... Yeah, yeah, the Louis, they're called. The different coloured kangaroos that you can ride on. It's like a little extra life insurance, I guess. A total rip-off of Yoshi, by the way. (laughs) Even though I think it came out before him, didn't it? Oh, really? I'd have to check that one. I think they came out at fairly similar times. Hang on, on. when did the Super Nintendo come out? Because Bomberman 94, presumably, came out in 1993, like they always do come out the year before the name. About 92, I think. Ooh, I think you watched on that one, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, they definitely took inspiration there from Super Mario World. But, yeah, a wonderful, wonderful addition. And the one-player mode is... I've still not completed it, but it's just so much better than the original it is, it, of games. It makes the the one that they officially got in the UK on the Super Nintendo look like it's bereft of... I mean, graphics aside, it's arguably a bit more polished on the Super Nintendo. But other than that, it's better in every possible way. It's more fun. The levels are much more interesting. Mm. They're on like two or three screens. There's much more, you know, you can get your power. If you die in Super Bomberman, you've got to wait about four levels to get back to where you were in terms of power-ups. On this one, you powered up to the tits in about three minutes flat. There's that much to do. Mm. Highly recommended by all Desert Island games. Yeah, and by Mr. Roscoe. Here tonight, and I believe that is all of your Desert Island games. You've it picked is. them all. You unfortunately don't get to swap them for another year oh, uh, until you come back on. So you're going to have to live with those for the next year or so until with them. until the pirate ship comes and picks you up with the executioner. But I do believe there are one or two extra items that we've not covered yet that you're going to take onto the island with you. And first of all, shall we go with your book? Yeah, the book I would take with me is called The Camel Club by David Baldacci. To try and sum that up in a brief paragraph for people who've never even heard of David Baldacci, it's basically a group of friends who you would consider possibly nerdy, certainly social outcasts, if you will, who seem to be conspiracy theorists and bumbling idiots until you realise that half of them have been in special forces in the army, one of them's a genius, the other one, the one who works in libraries is a bit of a enigma if you will because he doesn't have any real skills but it's a group of conspiracy theory friends who stumble across what turns out to be a very important murder and it leads them onto the top of the american intelligence apparatus and basically saving the world in a nutshell 
So basically, you do not need to go and read that now because Mr. Roscoe <laughs> has explained the whole thing. <laughs> that is pretty much the gist of what happens. Now, I will say, it's one of Baldacci's earlier books, and having read pretty much everything he's written subsequently, it's probably the most interesting one. It's the one where you get the... Well, I get the impression that he's got a lot of ideas and he gets a lot of good plot ideas and character descriptions going on now in subsequent books, certainly about the Camel Club, because he's kind of described the characters previously he kind of rehashes all ground and it's a little bit formulaic but no that one that one again it's not going to win any booker prizes but i just find it very enjoyable and i could sit and reread it tomorrow if i was given a copy of it so that's hesitate to use the word recommendation but if you've never read it and you're into spy books or thrillers then you can't go far wrong certainly it'd be like a pound in your charity shop if you could find it these days Excellent. And so, a lot of re-readability? Yeah, I would say so. It's um, Certainly the first time I read it, it was one of them rare occasions where I was actually kind of so gripped. It's like you start reading it at half eight and then you think, Christ, it's half ten, I better go to bed now. <laughs> and you feel like you wouldn't have been reading it for ten minutes, when in fact you've been reading it for two hours. Okay, so that is in your suitcase it for is the packed. desert island. Yeah, that it's ready. And you're almost ready, but... You've still got your luxury item. But before then, I must say that we're throwing in the complete works of Steve Benway. Oh, thank you very much. You get that for free. I'm bringing that back. I do believe that John used to give that away on the early days of Desert Island Games. And he's not been doing it recently. But I'm going to give you the complete works of Steve Benway, the continued works. So you keep getting his new updates as well. However, your luxury item... Do you have one? Have you thought of one? I have. I will take my bike with me, which was a, a Christmas present I got recently. And it's not, if you're a bike enthusiast, it's not what you would consider a luxury bike or an expensive one. But to me, it's the best thing since sliced bread because I need a bike, needed a bike, and my wife got me a very nice one. And compared with the literally 25 year old mountain bike I've been using recently, it goes like the proverbial off a very slick shovel. Excellent, excellent. And that would be great for getting around the desert island. Yes, it would take me all of 20 seconds from what you've told me to cycle around the island, so I look yeah, forward to that. Yeah, but it would be fun because you could pretend it's Grand Theft Auto or something. This island now is populated with so many people. It's only like half a kilometre wide. But now there's at least 40 or 50 people on there just stood there. What can you do on this island apart from play your games? So they're just going to be stood around on the beach like this. So it would be a fun game, that, to see who you can knock over and kill and eat <laughs> and eat for tea. It makes a change from the fish. It'd be like Death Race. Yeah, death Bonus race. points for knocking over the fast ones. Death race on the desert island, <laughs> all overseen by the executioner. I can just imagine him at the top of his sandcastle stood there with his cutlass. Yar, keep riding around like this, mateys. Har. Brilliant. You don't know who the executioner is, do you? No. <laughs> it's probably best to stay that way. And Okay. Let's put it this way. If you ever meet him, you'll never be speaking to me again, or indeed anybody at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, stay away from the executioner. And his grog. It's tainted, ladies and gentlemen. You don't know what he puts in there. It's pee, by the way. Right, so, (laughs) it's disgusting. I don't care. He can come and hunt me down if he likes. I'll take him on. One-handed. Because I'm playing games with the other hand, you see playing Pac-Man one-handed. Enough blurb from me, because that, I believe, is that for this particular edition of the Desert Island Games Show.
I have been Harry Yak. I've not been JL76 Gaming because JL, as I said, is doing some dodgy stuff with the executioner. But I've been joined by Roscoe Igarishu, the guy with the Japanese name that means English Gentleman Gamer. How have you enjoyed tonight's show? It's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Ah, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for joining us My here pleasure. on on the Retro and Limb Network, on Desert Island Games, and the Harry Ack channel. Oh my, oh my, how many plugs. I remember one day when I never used to plug anything, how times have changed. I have become a media whore. I'm a YouTube whore. Please send me all your money, consoles, etc., and donate to my Kickstarter and Patreon, or else I'm not coming back. Anyway, thank you very much, Ross. Have you got anything to say in closing? Keep it retro, baby. Thank you very much, and good night. Goodbye. Sayonara.